Many are eagerly awaiting approval of certain drugs, whether it be to cure a patient or to realize the research put into the development of the drug. Would a speedier drug approval process ultimately help or hinder our healthcare system? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special report on public policy. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host, and joining me today is Peter Pitts, co-founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest and Senior Vice President for Health Affairs at Manning, Salvage, and Lee. Mr. Pitts, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, can you kind of dive in a little bit into the process of actually bringing a drug to market, how lengthy and how expensive it is? Sure. Well, I was associate commissioner at the FDA, and one of the things that the FDA really prides itself on is bringing drugs to market as quickly and as safely as possible. So I think the first thing to understand is that bringing drugs to market more swiftly means nothing if they can't also be brought to market more safely. And that's exactly where I think industry and academia and the FDA are moving, both in the U.S. and other regulatory bodies globally. The way a drug comes to market now really is in three phases. The third phase being FDA regulatory review. A drug has to be uh, invented, obviously. It has to be brought to a point where it can be tested for safety and efficacy and then in large-scale human trials, in clinical trials. And once it reaches the FDA, the FDA will review all of the information, you know, ask questions, ask for more information, ask for, you know, the company to define certain questions that the agency has. And then only after that will the agency decide whether or not the drug is safe enough and effective enough and whether the risk benefit balance is appropriate enough for that drug to be brought to market. And now, because of new legislation, there's now something that could basically be called phase four, where the FDA can ask a company, once a drug has been approved and is on the market, to do post-market approval studies to see how the drug is doing and what new things we've learned about the risks and the benefits of that particular drug. Isn't that something the FDA was supposed to be doing? Well, the FDA has been doing it. Now it's been given the regulatory authority to demand that it be done. So it's given the FDA a little bit more muscle to make sure that what it wants to be done actually gets done. What is the current relationship between Big Pharma and the FDA? How cozy is it? How incestuous is it? You know, what's happened in the last, say, 10 years? You know, people who say that the FDA is, quote-unquote, in industry's pocket really has no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. Industry lives in abject fear of the FDA. The FDA is an agency of about 10,000 people. The division within the FDA which is called CEDAR, the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, which reviews new drug applications and post-market applications and deals with all the safety issues, is staffed 100% by career medical officials. There is not one political appointee in the Center for New Drugs or the Center for Biologics. So when people think that the FDA kowtows to industry, they really are completely ignorant of the situation. It's really the complete reverse. But doesn't Big Pharma pay like a royalty fee or actually pay part of the FDA's salary? Well, the industry pays user fees, which means they pay the FDA to review their applications, not to approve them, Mm -hmm. but to review them. And I think if you look at the FDA actions over the last five years, anybody who would say that the industry is kowtowing to industry either doesn't read English or doesn't understand the implications of what's going on. All right. So let's say a medication actually makes it out of clinical trials successfully. Then what happens to get that medication covered by, let's say, initially by Medicare? What has to happen? Well, that's not an FDA process. Once a drug goes through clinical trials and is approved by the FDA and gets basically a license to be sold in the United States, then the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is called CMS, which is the government body that runs Medicare, as well as 
various private insurance companies throughout the country make the decision as to whether or not they feel that drug should be reimbursed. And those decisions are based on a whole bunch of things. One is, you know, is it the only drug that treats a various disease, in which case it's generally always reimbursed? You know, is it more effective than other drugs on the market? But as science evolves and we begin to understand that if you have, let's say, five therapies in a category, say statins for high cholesterol, that one statin is not the same as another statin and that different people respond differently to different types of medications for the same disease. And that really is where pharmacogenomics or the science of the genome comes into play. Because now that we can test people to find out whether they're quick or slow metabolizers and what type of medicine they may or may not respond to best, we can more precisely prescribe both the proper medicine as well as, as the proper dose. And the way that this will manifest itself initially is we'll learn what drugs should not be prescribed to which people. So we'll, we'll be able to prescribe more safely. But ultimately, the way that insurers make their decisions is individually per drug on how effective it is, uh, the general size of the population, and what other drugs are available within the therapeutic category. Well, where are we in the evolution of pharmacogenomics? We're really at the very cusp of it. I mean, people keep saying that the 21st century is the genomic century, you know, the century of personalized medicine. And I think that's true. But, you know, just as we're at the very beginning of the millennium, so too, I think, are we at the very beginning of understanding all the various things that the human genome can show us relative to appropriate medications. The first things that we're seeing, which we're seeing right now, are which medicines are not appropriate to be given to what type of people. Like, for example, this drug called warfarin, which is a blood thinner, and it's a very good drug, but it's very dangerous to certain subpopulations in the U.S., and there's now a genetic test that exists that physicians can give their patients to understand which patients should not be given this drug. And, in fact, the FDA just recently changed the label of this medication to tell doctors that before they prescribe the medication, they should give their patients this particular test. So the science of gene testing is evolving. It's coming along slowly. And I guess another issue, we talked a little bit about reimbursement a couple of minutes ago. A lot of insurance companies aren't sure whether they want to reimburse for kind of prophylactic genetic tests. And I think ultimately they're going to realize that it's penny-wise and pound-foolish not to do that because not to pay for a gene test that could tell a physician which drugs not to prescribe, which would allow a patient not to have an adverse reaction or have to go through two or three iterations of medications and titrations is not only going to save the insurer money, but it's also going to get the patient more healthy quicker. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, a channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm speaking today with Peter Pitts, the co-founder of the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest and also Senior Vice President for Health Affairs at Manning, Salvage, and Lee. Mr. Pitts, you were talking about this new test. I'm kind of interested in it because it's the first I've heard of it. What's the name of the test that you give to people before you put them on warfarin? I'm not sure of the name of the genetic test, but there's only one. In fact, there's a lot of information on the FDA website. It was big news when the FDA announced it because it actually was the first time the FDA ever put on the label of the medication the fact that a gene test is available and should be used. And a lot of people, a lot of physicians actually, complain that this was the FDA beginning to tell the medical practitioner how to do their job, how to practice medicine. But I think ultimately it's the FDA's job to make the physician aware that these types of tests exist and that in a general risk-benefit analysis situation, it's much more responsible to do a test rather than to just act on you know, a past knowledge of the patient or past knowledge of similar patients. Because you know, as you know, you know, every patient is different. Everybody's biochemistry is different. Just responding to your experience as a physician, while it's certainly very important, can certainly be significantly augmented by a, a more precise genetic test. What happens when drugs come to market too quickly? Who suffers? Well, I guess the question is, what does bring to market too quickly mean? I mean, ultimately, 
drugs are tested in clinical trials that can have anywhere from hundreds to a few thousands to tens of thousands of patients. But at the end of the day, a drug will always have risks as well as benefits. And when a drug reaches the market and is, is used by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, we learn more things more quickly. So the question of what does too quickly mean kind of leads you down the path of discussing, you know, what type of risk is acceptable in various types of medications. Obviously, if you have a medication for, say, lung cancer, which is an extraordinarily toxic disease, you accept a, a much larger degree of risk as you would for diseases such as multiple sclerosis uh, or you know, diseases of the liver, as opposed to pain relievers or, or allergy medications where you want a much lower degree of risk and a much higher degree of benefit. So ultimately, I think the question is, you know, not so much are drugs being brought to market too quickly, but do people understand that all drugs have risks? I think that, you know, Americans woke up the morning after the recall of Vioxx, and they went, oh my God, you know, drugs it's have not risks. candy? Drugs have risks? Oh my God, when did that happen? You know, I mean, in many respects, both the industry and the FDA were victims of their own success, and people assume that drugs in this country are so safe that they are completely safe. Right, but they are drugs. They are, and OTC medicines are the same. Even medicines you buy at the drugstore without a prescription have labels, they need to be followed, and they have risks. I mean, a lot of public officials, one senator actually said the day after Vioxx was withdrawn that the FDA should not approve any new drugs that have risks. <laughs> and I think that just showed me the tremendous amount of ignorance out there right. about the, the fact that drugs have risks as well as benefits. And, and I think industry also you know, bears a certain degree of blame for really you know, underplaying the risks while you know, painting a very rosy picture of the benefits. And I think that we would all do much better to be much more honest about what these medications do and what they don't do and what risks they carry with them. Well, I know on your website you talk a little bit about one of the more recent drugs that didn't make it. It's called the Affairs of the Heart, and you talk about torcetrapib, and that was a drug that uh, had an enormous amount of hype, and it was supposed to revolutionize the treatment of atherosclerosis, and it was killing more people than it was helping. Well, the thing about torcetrapib is that it actually never made it onto the market. You know, it was a big drug. It was an experimental new drug by Pfizer, and Pfizer looked at the clinical trials at a certain point and realized that it wasn't going to make it. And they cut their losses, and the losses, I imagine, were pretty significant. It cost about a billion dollars to bring a new drug to market. But they saw the clinical trials. They saw that it wasn't going to be safe enough, that the risk-benefit analysis was not in the proper order, and they pulled their application. So in this respect, it isn't even the FDA being the watchdog. It's the pharmaceutical company itself looking at the results of clinical trials and going, it's not going to cut it. And clearly, that was a hard financial decision, but I think at the end of the day, it was a very easy science decision and a very responsible one to make. Well, there's two other CETP inhibitors out there. What would you be advising these other companies that are still working on them? Well, you know, it's an important therapeutic category. Unfortunately, we're all becoming a nation of you know, obese, diabetic hypertensives. And, you know, these medications, again, unfortunately, as all of us baby boomers age into the period of our lives where we're going to deal with these issues you know, from a pharmacological standpoint, it becomes important if new medications can come to become available that are obviously different molecules and react differently in different people. So I think that at the end of the day, you don't want one drug to treat everybody because if one drug that's on the market right now is good for, say, 85% of the population, but I happen to be part of the 15% that's not so good for, you know, I certainly want options. I want my doctor to have options. I want my doctor to be you know, educated about which drugs are right for me personally. Well, that makes me think of the new uh, anticoagulant that, I don't know if it's been approved or it's about to be approved, that is good for 80% and not great for 20%. This is a new drug that Eli Lilly has, an experimental drug called Prozacryl. And right now, there's only one drug on the market for this. It's Plavix, which is a drug by Sanofi Ventus, a French drug company. And Plavix is a terrific drug. It's one of the world's you know, most frequently prescribed drugs. But again, 
you know, if you have drugs that can be more robust and help a very large portion of patients respond better, I think that's a good thing. But similarly, as we were talking about earlier, you want to be sure that the people for whom it is not a good choice understand that it's not a good choice. And rather than going on that drug first, having an adverse event, being taken off the drug, being put on a new drug with all the various hassles and intricacies and health complications that ensue, it's best to have a choice, but the doctor has to be able to make an educated choice. And that means, you know, good, solid clinical science, you know, good experience with the drug, good journal articles, and good genetic tests available. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Peter Pitts, for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I'm Dr. Larry Casco, and you've been listening to a special segment on public policy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments here at ReachMD. Please visit our website, ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thanks for listening. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals.